Welcome to the Energy Transition Podcast. I'm Ronan Kavna, editor of World Energy Opinion, and I'm delighted to be joined today by EI New Energy editor Lauren Kraft and Alex Martinos, our director of energy transition research. Thank you for joining us. It's a joy to be here. Yeah. Hi there, Ronan. Now, we're here to discuss some of the highlights of a new report from the transition research team on electric vehicle prospects. First, perhaps Alex would help to understand what the report does. Can you explain briefly? Thanks, Ronan. Uh, So our latest report lays out three scenarios for EV adoption, while also explaining the various risks and drivers. Uh, We're drawing from data uh, from top auto markets around the world, the US, China and Europe, and now also uh, Japan and South Korea, which we've included in our modelling for the first time. Uh, We've looked at EV sales trajectories out to 2040, We've looked at key drivers shaping this outlook, and we've also looked at the impact on fuel demand. Great. Now, the outlook is titled Into the Fast Lane, which kind of gives us a bit of a strong clue there about the findings, Alex. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Five or six years ago, when we started doing this analysis, rapid disruptive adoption of EVs was really just one of many possible future outcomes. At that point, they were making up around 1% of global auto sales. Um, Today, fast growth in EV sales uptake appears to be, as we say in the report, the most probable pathway globally. This is reflected in sales data, especially in Europe, with plug-in EV sales trending at over 20% in 2021 and in the first months of this year. And in recent months have seen even higher market penetration in China, touching 30%. Even in the US, sales are rising sharply, if from a slightly lower base. Um, So we've seen a critical shift in consumer sentiment in key markets, and that is propelling EV uptake higher despite uh, pandemic-related pressures. So electric vehicle uptake is really no longer a question of if it will happen, but when and how quickly. Thanks, Alex. Now, Lauren, these findings won't be much of a surprise to you. I mean, we've been reporting these trends closely in EI New Energy over the years. What have you seen on this? You know, that's a great question. And I, I like to think about movements like this, movements toward electric vehicles or movements toward uh, other technologies, sort of like a plane when it takes off. You you know, when you're ascending into the air, it's bumpy and rough and you have to stay in your seats, but then you reach a good point and, and things are much smoother. And we're starting to see the point at which the electric vehicle transition is moving toward that point of smoothness. And over time, when we think about the future that's really envisioned here with electric vehicles, which is a mass adoption of EVs, you know, enough EVs that you're really displacing oil demand, that you're really making an impact on tailpipe emissions and climate change, that has moved from a theoretical notion because sales used to be so small and people weren't used to them, people weren't used to the vehicles, manufacturers weren't used to making them in mass. Uh, moving from that theoretical notion to a rapidly emerging reality as sales pick up and, and the penetration of sales picks up that proportion of EV sales versus overall conventional car sales or overall sales. And this momentum has come from many factors. Uh, one, a big one, I think, is greater choices of electric vehicle models. And we've seen many automakers set ambitious goals to electrify their vehicle lineups, their portfolios by the 2030s uh, or move them completely electric by the 2030s. But we're seeing the effects of this now because they're rolling out these greater choices, these additional choices. 
And especially this year, we've seen so many different options. And that includes electric SUVs and pickup trucks, which is a really big chunk of the new vehicle sales market is that that bulky sales uh, class. Another factor is bans on internal combustion engine vehicle sales that we're seeing from more governments around the world or or targets to do so, loose targets or firm targets. Another factor is falling battery costs in general over time, as well as growing public charging networks. And who is in the driver's seat, of course, literally and figuratively, is consumers. And we've seen consumer sentiment in key markets catching on and that momentum picking up more swiftly. And this is evident by the soaring sales penetration you know, also with high prices at the pump, this is certainly helping to boost that proportion of EVs versus ICE vehicles, internal combustion engine vehicles. Thanks, Aaron. I mean, that's a big list of positive things. But where's the catch, which is something as journalists we always need to look out for? <laughs> of course. Well, if you imagine you're driving along a road, uh, if you're a driver like me, we can sometimes hit potholes on the roads or the highways and they slow us down or we have to maneuver around them. And that's true in a figurative way for the transition to electric vehicles. And some of the potholes, so to speak, are longstanding ones and some are more recent. So more recently, we've seen production costs and ongoing manufacturing problems. And we're seeing this impact the pace of EV adoption because it's affecting the availability of the vehicles. And looking ahead, a slowdown could happen, uh, not necessarily, but it could happen if Battery materials costs, which is a more recent challenge, if they continue rising, if manufacturing and supply chain challenges, if they linger on and really persist, or if charging infrastructure lags and remains a bit inadequate, uh, or additionally, if problems arise with electricity prices or grid connectivity. Interesting. Now, I want to come back to those obstacles and their implications in a moment. But Alex, first, can I ask you to run through some of the key conclusions you know, from the report? Like, how fast are EV sales actually going to grow? So uh, in our core case uh, in the report, uh, with awareness of some of the near-term uncertainties that we've touched on, we assume a slightly more moderate rate of sales growth out to 2025. Uh, But then after that, a a further acceleration in the second half of this decade and beyond uh, into the 2030s. So in this scenario, EVs uh, we see as the top selling passenger vehicles by the early 2030s and making up nearly 40% of the total uh, global auto feet Uh, fleet uh, for these five major markets that we cover um, by 2040. That said, there's still uncertainty in the outlook, and that's reflected in our high and low scenarios. So in our low case, EVs account for uh, under 20% of the total vehicle fleet by 2040 versus nearly 60% of that fleet um, in our high scenario. Okay, but coming back to the obstacles now, I mean, how much of a roadblock could they be, Alex? Yeah, and Lauren did a great job of setting out some of these potential hurdles. Uh, but I think our sense is, at least in the most likely case, uh, these can mostly be overcome. So while we see limits to the availability of key materials and components, as well as some cost pressures that could constrain near-term EV growth, Um, we see limited long-term effects. We've looked at areas like the possible impact of higher metals costs, with EV metals input costs up 60% since January 2019, including a five-fold rise in lithium prices, and cobalt up over 50%. 
together with the risks of disruption to battery and semiconductor production, uh, we think these factors could potentially delay cost parity between EVs and internal combustion engine vehicles uh, by around two years, perhaps to around 2027. Uh, but we do see large investments in battery and semiconductor capacity and revived post-pandemic supply, keeping um, these supply chain issues um, in all likelihood relatively short-lived. Um, and then finally, I guess, improved metals efficiency in battery chemistries, cheaper alternative materials. These are things that um, battery makers, automakers are all pursuing already um, and are likely to help minimize supply side disruption by the middle of the decade and help cut um, levelized battery costs. So lithium ion battery costs out uh, by 2030 to around $87 per uh, kilowatt hour on our estimate. So that's a significant further decrease from where they are today. And it's uh, crucially below the level of cost parity with combustion engine vehicles. Interesting. So, I mean, the direction of travel is clear if the speed is perhaps the question. But what kind of impact will all of this have on oil demand growth, Alex? Uh, so, Ronan, we see EVs starting to constrain or undermine overall oil demand growth from around 2025 onwards, and then start to drive global declines in overall oil demand uh, from 2030 onwards. Why is that? Well, all three of our scenarios show demand from passenger light duty vehicle uh, in these five key markets covered peaking from the mid 2020s and falling thereafter. Um, so the only real question is how fast does demand from this segment decline? And, and as a result of this, EVs are set to become really the central core driver of declining global oil use from 2030 onwards. Uh, to give you just a few numbers around this, in our core case, um, uh, looking at fuel demand for passenger light duty vehicles in these five markets. We see that peaking at around 16 million barrels a day in the middle of this decade before slowly easing back to sort of pre-COVID baseline 2019 levels around 15 million barrels a day by 2030. Um, after 2030, accelerated EV uptake then sees demand from this segment fall by around 4 million barrels a day below that 2019 baseline level. Uh, by 2040. Or in our high case, rather than 4 million barrels a day, we're looking at around 7.5 million barrels a day um, decline against that baseline by 2040. Finally, we've also looked at how different fuels may be impacted differently, um, and their um, diesel demand growth from this segment turns negative well before gasoline demand does. And that's something else, uh, an additional dynamic to watch. Exactly, a, a very important dynamic. And Lauren, I mean, China is a key player in EVs and it's made enormous strides lately, which we've reported in EI New Energy. Can you tell us a bit about that? Indeed. We use the headline Unstoppable Momentum to describe it just recently in a story from our Asia reporter, Kim Feng Wong. And we're seeing electric cars in China reaching new sales peaks, new sales penetration peaks which is particularly surprising because they have had additional challenges that other markets don't have, or at least not to the same degree. The growing EV sales proportions are happening despite a recent government move that benefited mostly the oil-powered vehicles, the ICE vehicles, um, in that the purchase taxes in the country were cut, and that mainly benefited those conventional cars. 
um, they made them more attractive. Uh, but EVs are standing their ground and the proportion of sales versus ICE cars are increasing nonetheless. And then of course, in China, as we all know that they're seeing, I've seen uh, COVID-19 resurgences. And that's on top of all the other challenges with the supply chain that, that other countries are facing as well. And more specifically, Chinese consumers last month bought a record of nearly 600,000 EVs. And this comprises all electric plug-in hybrid and hydrogen fuel cell electric models. And cumulative half-year EV sales have hit 2.6 million units. And this represents a 115% year-on-year surge that really defied some of those economic and geopolitical challenges. Impressive numbers on the on the sales side. But China is also a major EV manufacturer too, isn't it? That's right. That's right. China has a manufacturer, BYD. And in that country, they remain the top EV seller. And they're staying way ahead of their rivals, both domestic rivals and foreign rivals. So BYD, which has stopped producing oil-fueled vehicles since March of this year, it saw its half-year EV sales spike by over 300% to more than 630,000 units, uh, which is three times the number sold by its nearest rival. But its rivals are very interesting as well. You'll take, for example... SGMW. This is a joint venture that comprises Shanghai Automotive, it comprises GM, and another local partner. But SGMW is, while it's a distance second to BYD in terms of sales, uh, it's also seeing increases. It posted first half EV sales of just over 208,000 units, which is an increase. Uh, It's interesting, this company is interesting, it produces a budget-friendly but basic and very basic model. They call it the Mini. And it's been hogging the top spot on the bestseller EV chart since its debut. So while this isn't the best-selling manufacturer overall, it, it has that really, really popular budget model that's just very, very affordable. And on sales, it's been beating pricier models from BYD, but also Tesla. And Tesla ranked third among EV manufacturers in China with half-year sales of just under 200,000 units. So even the, the foreign companies um, outside of China are doing very well in the country. Great. I mean, that's impressive. And um, I mean, that shift in China, obviously, going to be very critical. And we're seeing kind of Europe also growth taking off. But I suppose the US is lagging. And, and what kind of how does this affect the overall picture, Alex? Uh, yeah, I mean, we do see the US market as vulnerable to further back and forth political shifts in an environment of wider political polarization. So we've seen that already, for example, on things like fuel economy rules. And these are areas where um, Lauren and other colleagues are, are, are following closely. Um, but slower EV adoption in the US does matter. Uh, the conventional cars and trucks that EVs might displace are typically less economical and driven further than elsewhere, like in Europe or Japan. So each EV sold has more impact on fuel demand if it's in the US. Uh, One other point to remember is that other countries will have to shift carefully from subsidizing, as they do now, EVs, to taxing them in the future to replace lost revenues currently from things like fuel taxation. Um, So these considerations all need to be factored into the mix and are reflected in our core scenario. Uh, Still, I should say we see the shift in consumer sentiment that we've been talking about, especially in China and in Europe, potentially supporting our high case should these issues resolve more quickly, bringing more rapid and more disruptive change. 
Um, on the other side of things, prospects for our low case are looking progressively weaker. So we now see fewer plausible pathways to a dramatic slowdown or reversal in EV development and EV sales. Well, that's that's really interesting. But you know, what do we need to keep an eye on for next? You know, the possible headwinds for this, Alex. Yeah, I mean, this is a long-term story, Ronan, with long-term trends. But um, I think what I'd say key to watch over the next 12 to 18 months are, uh, firstly, any ongoing supply chain disruptions and related to that, any impact on the ability of automakers to deliver new models at affordable prices. Secondly, the pace at which charging infrastructure can be expanded, especially in more challenging areas, which may include dense urban centers, but also remote rural locations. And then thirdly and finally, we'll be watching for any unwinding of generous EV policy incentives and support while keeping an eye on the planned future restrictions on gasoline and diesel car sales. Thanks. And your thought, Lauren? We could say that several other surprises and risks could affect how quickly EVs will displace those ICE vehicles and ultimately erode oil demand in transportation. And in the U.S. Uh, in particular, we could look at midterm election results policies there, which is still very much in flux, whereas we see policies a little bit more stable we're seeing in Europe and in China. And then more globally, we always need to be ready for surprises. If, if the last years have uh, taught us anything, it's that. And those surprises and risks could be the possibility of a global recession. They could be fluctuations in oil prices up and down. We just don't know. And further geopolitical tensions, of course. Indeed, indeed. And I mean, you've certainly given us a lot to think about here. So I want to thank you both for coming today and sharing those insights. Thank you as well. Thank you, everyone. Well, we're just about out of time now, so that just leaves it to me to say thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today and that you'll join us for the next Energy Transition podcast. And of course, in the meantime, please check out www.energyintel.com for all our latest content, including the EV report. 